Hello, Great Minds. It's Tuesday, and that means it's time for Drinks with Great Minds in History. Yes, it's finally time. We're covering Cleopatra VII. So they say beauty is only skin deep, and that's about as true of the superficial bullshit history and popular image that gets put out there about today's truly great mind. In a way, it isn't surprising that so much emphasis was placed on her beauty, both in her day and after. But don't misunderstand. It may not shock me, but it does fucking suck. So let's look at some of those sources. Writing nearly 200 years after her death, Cassius Dio wrote of her in his extremely large work on ancient Rome that she was, quote, a woman of surpassing beauty, and at that time, when she was in the prime of her youth, she was most striking. She also possessed a charming voice and a knowledge of how to make herself agreeable to everyone. Being brilliant to look upon and to listen to, with the power to subjugate everyone, even a love-stated man already passed his prime. Shakespeare implied that she was a, quote, woman as changeable as water, now jealous nag, now regal diplomat, now magnanimous lover, now self-serving schemer. Plutarch wrote of her seduction of Mark Antony, saying, quote, she went putting confidence in herself and in the charms and sorceries of her own person. He at least goes on to defend her a bit, saying, quote, for her beauty, as we are told, was in itself not altogether incomparable, but conversation with her had an irresistible charm. Continuing on, the Augustan poet Proprietus just called her the, quote, whore queen. But modern scholarship has certainly strayed away from the defaulting trends of the 20th century. The problem is that the general population is fine with the Hollywood version. I, however, am not so content. I have come to agree with historian and Cleopatra biographer Dwayne W. Roller when he says, quote, Few personalities from classical antiquity are more familiar yet more poorly grasped than Cleopatra VII, Queen of Egypt. He continues, Cleopatra herself is surprisingly little known and generally misunderstood. Roller, who was my primary source of information for this episode, started his fantastic biography, Cleopatra, with a John Burgoyne quote, History, sir, will tell lies as usual. And that is the case here, that history has led to a false memory of today's subject that has been so romanticized and become so prominent throughout so many ages of history that it stands strong in popular memory. Now, I know that Cleopatra was so much more than a historical beauty, a femme fatale, a temptress for the ages. I mean, sure, what the hell, she might have had a bit of all of that in her story or the way it is told, but is that really what deserves all the attention? Interestingly, that's not the only question raised surrounding Cleopatra's physical appearance, as Euro versus Afrocentric racial origin is a hot topic today, especially surrounding this new documentary on today's subject releasing this month on Netflix. There is so much ambiguity about her maternal parentage, yet alone the legitimacy of her father's line, that her racial origins are certainly up for speculation. Historian Ella Shohat notes in her essay Disorienting Cleopatra, quote, Over the past decades, Cleopatra has been the subject of a vocal debate about blood, race, and origins. She goes on to point out the simple reality that the text evidence reveals one simple truth, the, quote, impossibility of fully establishing her origins. And that's totally true. One historian, Michael Foss, noted the following. The grandmother of Cleopatra was a concubine. Her mother is not known for certain. Given all the uncertainties of her ancestry, one scholar has estimated her blood as 32 parts Greek, 27 parts Macedonian, and 5 parts Persian. It is a reasonable guess. If she was black, no one mentioned it. Honestly, I have trouble understanding why people are getting so upset over this Netflix documentary where Cleopatra will be portrayed by a black artist. The Afrocentric side of the debate is certainly more historically plausible than the lily-white Hollywood version that the world has accepted for decades. 
The simple reality is, as Shohat put it, in reference to the aforementioned Foss quote, if Cleopatra was white, no one mentioned that either. And honestly, why would they? Rome, or at least the Augustan propaganda that we will discuss later, would have no real need to mention it at all. As race, that is one's skin color, certainly did not cause half the divide that it does today. But for me, it is still very interesting to see such a powerful historical figure survive in the historical debate. Showett also notes the role of beauty in the debate over Cleopatra, even noting the struggle to define beauty, saying, quote, Contemporary writers, even when gesturing toward the difficulty of actually defining beauty, nevertheless express their strong convictions about Cleopatra's beauty or ugliness. She even discusses the historical discussion or obsession with the shape of her nose, but she also notes, quote, As a visual medium, the cinema had no choice but to be concerned with Cleopatra's complexion and facial features. Which brings us to the big issue for today beauty. For me, Cleopatra is one of the most underrated historical figures whose legacy has been dumbed down to a pretty face, a tragically beautiful footprint cemented in film by stars like Vivian Lee and Elizabeth Taylor. I mean, fuck, history is relentless and lacking creative thought when it comes to writing about women. And by history, I mean those old white men. Catherine de' Medici, first thing you get, unattractive or a witch. Christina of Sweden, first thing you get, bisexuality. Both may have been a little bit true, but that's not the point. The point is that countless people probably still think that Catherine the Great died fucking a horse. History, myth, and sexist misconceptions have begot a tarnished legacy for these and countless other great women of history. Cleopatra shouldn't be remembered for her beauty or power of seduction, although her relationships do certainly play an important role in the greater story. She should be remembered as a cunning pragmatist, as the intellectual that she was, as a great mind that outsmarted just about everyone around her. She was ruthless in her rise, fearless in her fall. She was one of five children to a king and pharaoh of one of the most impressive civilizations the world has ever known. She was the only of those five children to survive to see the fall of Egypt. She pushed back against the mightiest rising power in the Mediterranean world. And by the way, in one way or another, she killed most of those siblings. In fact, all but one of her father's children fell by Cleopatra's will. Speaking of today, I wanted to drink something from Aspen, a place where the beer flows like wine and beautiful women instinctively flock like the salmon of Capistrano. And if you don't know why that beer and that quote are fitting for today, well, you will. And if you don't know that quote, then you need to expand your comedic viewing choices. Oddly, not a lot of Aspen beers in southwest Florida, so I decided I was going to go with a liquor called Arak, which is a traditional drink in Egypt and much of the rest of the eastern Mediterranean world that I had not had before. So my choice was Razouk 100 Proof Arak, which certainly still fits for this story, but I didn't want to go buy a whole bottle, so I'll save it for another day. Oh, Mr. DGMH, you cheap ass, just go buy it. Fine, I will, but not for today. Today I went with a Sleeping Beauty cocktail, as I actually had all the ingredients for this sweet little martini. Chill some hypnotic, which I gotta say I never really liked, but just so happened to have, and mix it with a blend of vodka, Sprite, and kinky pink liqueur, which I also had for some reason. Actually, I also have it in kinky blue and kinky green. Maybe that's why I buy it. It's fun. The trick is that you need to layer it, so start with chilled hypnotic in a glass, then strain the rest over the top. Blue on the bottom, pink on top. Not sure why I actually have Hypnotic, which I'm pretty sure I got at Walmart, but maybe we can choke this sweet, fruity drink down and try to put that beauty talk to bed. <clears throat> oh, that's sweet. <clears throat> wow. Okay. Also, we have another Patreon shout-out to listener Steph. Welcome to Patreon land, and thank you so much for your support. Well, let's get to it. Cleopatra's tale is a story for the ages, but all the ages ever seem to care about is the sex. Sure, it makes for good Shakespearean drama, a fun Hollywood film, even a contentious Netflix documentary directed by Jada Pickett-Smith. 
but that is problematic. Separating fact from fiction when it comes to Cleopatra seems more like an impossible dream. People would sooner recall Shakespeare's temptress than the powerful independent force that was Cleopatra VII. It is more true to say that she was, quote, an accomplished diplomat, naval commander, administrator, linguist, and author who skillfully managed her kingdom in the face of a deteriorating political situation and increasing Roman involvement. At her height, she ruled over a kingdom that had been fully restored to the former glory of Ptolemy I. She was queen of queens, her son king of kings. And then it all bit her in the asp. Or did the asp bite her? Oh well. Either way, today we will tell a beautiful tale of a powerful woman who tried to reshape her world and then lost it all. If you can't tell, I had hoped she would close out Season 3's theme on Rise and Fall, but I think she will make for one hell of a what-if, too. But first, it's some history for you, a reason to drink for me, it's the history of the great minds that made history come to be. So Cleopatra's story is messy and filled with Ptolemies from 12 to 15. It is filled with Caesars and Antonies and so many wars. It is messy, it is confusing, and it is ancient, which means the sources fucking suck, are even more fucking impossible to find, and to me always seem to have a touch of mystery and make-believe. So let's start with that Ptolemaic mess as we look at Cleopatra's background. Born around 70 to 69 BCE, she was the daughter of Ptolemy XII, who was himself the illegitimate son of another Ptolemy. He had to fight against his father, brother, and mother to obtain power. Her mother, Cleopatra V, or maybe the sixth, I told you it was going to be messy, who was either Ptolemy XII's sister or cousin, or meh, maybe both, leaves some ambiguity as to her maternal parentage. Given the piss-poor amount of record on her, it is just a confounding mess. A mess we really don't have to get into because Ptolemy XII was a fool who ran his kingdom into massive debts that Cleopatra would have to deal with way down the road. Still, some revolting combination of incest begot Cleopatra VII and her four siblings, two sisters, Berenike or Bernice, and Arsinoe, and two brothers whom she would ceremoniously wed, the future Ptolemy XIII and XIV. Now Roller notes, quote, None of Ptolemy XII's five children died naturally. I would further that point by answering the obvious question of how is that possible, with a simple answer, Cleopatra. As for Ptolemy XII, well, he found himself fleeing to Rome in exile. Cleopatra was actually believed to be with him, as his other daughter, Berenike VI, seized his throne. He had spent three years in exile in Rome before being restored to power in 55 BCE. Ptolemy XII then had his daughter executed in one of his first restoration orders, which was great news for Cleopatra. Cleopatra's first note in historical records is around 52 BCE in a sort of foreboding omen of what was to come, as Ptolemy XII died within a year. Just three years later, Cleopatra was named co-ruler of Egypt, as upon his death he willed that Cleopatra rule alongside her brother Ptolemy XIII, and so the fun begins. Now ruler, or at least co-ruler of Egypt, Cleopatra rose to power shortly before Caesar's civil war broke out and the Roman Republic saw its triumvirate of leaders at war. Well, really just Caesar and Pompey, but still. Surprising to me, as I am no ancient scholar, this Roman civil war would mix with another civil war in Egypt that we are about to discuss as Cleopatra aimed to surpass her brother and rule absolute. Miraculously, Cleopatra managed to win a civil war within the context of a larger civil war that she was losing at the start of both civil wars. So let's backtrack there because that was hard to say and it took me like 10 times, so I'm sure it confused you. Upon ascending to the throne, Cleopatra had several messes to deal with, including poor flooding seasons in the Nile, which brought about famine, and then there was the 17 million drachma mess that her father left behind. From the beginning, as early as 51 BCE, Cleopatra made clear her desire to rule alone, having herself often listed as sole ruler on official edicts. This unsurprisingly caused a civil crisis, dare I say war, with her brusbane that would last for years. 
But by 49 BCE, Cleopatra was losing this conflict terribly, and Ptolemy XIII had the upper hand, even beginning to sign documents ahead of his co-monarch and sister wife. Enter Rome. So this is where it starts to continue to get messy, but slightly less Ptolemaic, but oddly still just as incestuous. As a one Julius Caesar enters our story, but not alone, for Rome too had collapsed into civil war between Caesar and Pompey, the latter being the very man who restored Cleopatra and her father to power in Egypt. Now I'm going to oversimplify this, I can't chat at length about every little war that breaks out, nor do I want to, but this one is pretty simple. Pompey and Caesar, having been in a pissing contest ever since Caesar crossed the Rubicon, literally that is, not metaphorically, and Pompey fled to the east. By this point, Cleopatra and her brother, Ptolemy XIII, were firmly in power, although still client states of Rome. Just to be clear, it is way more complicated than Pompey showing up in Egypt with Caesar following him, and then Pompey finding his head severed from his body by Cleopatra's idiot brother, but in a sense, that is exactly what happened. But Caesar was no fan of this action, and in fact was both angry and horrified by the barbarity of Ptolemy XIII's actions. Also by this point, Ptolemy and Arsinoe had banded together to march against Cleopatra. Why, you ask? Well, most of us know that this is where the story starts to overlap with the popular image of Cleopatra, as she witted and charmed her way into Caesar's good graces. So let's slow this down a little bit. Caesar's little civil war basically upended the first triumvirate as two of its members found themselves pitted against each other, and Caesar seemed to be getting a bit too powerful. So when Caesar was sent away to die in Gaul, he didn't. He did some impressive shit, and then he came back to Rome, even though Pompey and the Senate told him not to and to surrender his armies and territories. His visions of dictatorship scared Pompey out of Rome, and Caesar pursued him. Although Pompey had some success over Caesar in this war, he was ultimately and decisively defeated at Pharsalus. At Pharsalus. And I'm going to butcher all these ancient Roman cities, I didn't have time to look them all up, I'll try my best. If it's wrong, you'll just have to take another drink and get over it. At least that's what I do. Now his allies, Brutus and Cicero, along with others, surrendered and lived, but this is where Cato the Younger continued to resist, eventually taking his own life sooner than serve under Caesar's triumph. And yes, I did choose my words carefully there. For more on Cato the Younger, I strongly suggest you check out Stacey Roberts' show History's Trainwrecks, where he has gone into great detail over this interesting historical figure. But back to DGMH. Pompey fled to Egypt, where, as I said, he lost his head. The war continued on after that, as Caesar still had two issues to deal with. Metellus Scipio, who he eventually defeated in 46 BCE at the Battle of Thapsus, and two, the whole Egyptian mess. A later victory at Munda wiped out most of Pompey's remaining allies, and Caesar was named dictator for life in 44 BCE. So where does Cleopatra come into this? Well, it was her brother who killed Pompey, or at least his advisors. Honestly, Ptolemy XIII was kind of a dud, but still he was the one in a civil war with Cleopatra. In fact, while Caesar was fighting in Pharsalus, Cleopatra was in Roman Syria trying to raise an army to resist her brother. This wouldn't really matter after Caesar showed up, though, and basically told the children to stop fighting. Cleopatra, however, had other plans. Sneaking into her own capital, Cleopatra met with Caesar privately because she was aware, according to Roman sources who were never kind to her, of his rumored liking for having relationships with royal women. Ptolemy XIII reacted poorly to his sister's advances, seeing full well her intentions to sway Caesar to, his, to her side in this crisis. So he essentially tried to cause a riot in the city, but Caesar arrested the young pharaoh, calmed the masses with his oratory skill, and then busted out Ptolemy XII's will. This really showed some foresight on Caesar's behalf, as we mentioned this will, which was left in Rome for security's sake, named Cleopatra and Ptolemy joint heirs of Egypt. In revealing this documentation, he essentially rendered Ptolemy XIII and Arsinoe's efforts illegal. With all this favoring Cleopatra, war unsurprisingly continued. 
Caesar and around 4,000 men were up against Ptolemy now allied with Arsinoe and 20,000 men. Caesar would likely have faced defeat had reinforcements not arrived in March 47 BCE. So Arsinoe and Ptolemy XIII were defeated, and as the latter tried to flee from the Battle of the Nile, he drowned. Arsinoe was captured, and Cleopatra was named ruler alongside her 12-year-old brother, now crowned Ptolemy XIV. So Cleopatra's plans were working out quite nicely, if we accept at least that now she was influencing Caesar's decisions, at least as much as his desire to see peace in his dominions did. Then she drove Caesar to appoint Arsinoe into a glorious exile as ruler of Cyprus. In this moment, Cleopatra also won Cyprus back for the Ptolemaic dynasty, having lost it to Roman forces in 58 BCE. While Cleopatra, now 22, was believed to have engaged in a ceremonial sibling marriage, it was Caesar whom she was truly with, if you know what I mean. The two were even said to have gone on a Nile River cruise, which boosted both Cleopatra and Caesar's popularity in the region. Arsinoe was taken to Rome to be paraded in Caesar's triumph, a sort of parade of his most recent conquest, but one person was notably absent from this, Cleopatra, who was pregnant with her and Caesar's son, who was named Caesarian and born in June 47 BCE. And no, that is not where the term comes from. Caesar and Caesarian are neither the namesake for the salad or the section. Either way, Cleopatra visited Rome again in 44 BCE, just in time for Caesar to be, oh you know, assassinated. But Cleopatra acted swiftly, never really fearing for her life. After all, she was a queen of a Roman client state. And so she went back to Egypt to begin her rule with Brusbane number 2. Rule alongside Ptolemy XIV was really just to appease the masses and spare them having a female ruler, which surprised men in Egypt hated. However, joint rule would be short-lived as Cleopatra likely killed him with some sort of poisonous cream. Why? Well, Cleopatra doesn't really seem to give a shit about murder, for one, and two, he was in the way of both her and her son's path to rule. But Caesar was dead, and just like that, Rome was on the verge of civil war again. This time, it was the Liberators' Civil War, when Octavian, Caesar's chosen heir, was joined by Mark Antony to avenge Caesar's death. Oddly, and rather smartly, Cleopatra played the field here. I was honestly surprised to read that Cleopatra actually wasn't sure of which side she was on in this conflict. But in the end, I can say with 100% certainty that it is clear that she was always on Egypt's side, which meant that she had to be on the winning side of this war. And when Brutus and the boys were defeated at Philippi, and Brutus and Cassius took their own lives, Cleopatra made it clear that she was always on Team Caesar. In fact, her appointed governor of Cyprus, which was now firmly hers by the way, sent ships to aid Brutus and Cassius while Cleopatra took her fleet personally to Greece to aid Octavian and Antony. But a terrible storm conveniently slowed her advance and she missed all the good fighting and ever having to really make a choice. Some historians and contemporaries actually believed that she was en route to defect and join Cassius, but God only knows why she would do that, maybe some misguided faith in the Roman Senate. Who knows? Either way, she was able to clear her name during a meeting with none other than Mark Antony, who was now pretty much the sole man in charge of the eastern half of Rome's territories, which of course included Egypt. A victorious Antony welcomed Cleopatra to his headquarters at Tarsus to defend her position in the recent conflict, that is, to clear her name, which was being dragged through the mud. While there, she somehow convinced him to execute her rebellious governor, Serapion, and even had her sister Arsinoe, who was exiled at Ephesus, executed. So this is where the real love story starts to unfold. Before leaving his estate at Tarsus, Cleopatra invited Mark Antony to visit Alexandria, which he did in 41 BCE. 
He was well-liked in Egypt, both for his military prowess and the fact that he had played a role in Pompey's restoration of Cleopatra's father. Nearly 14 years her elder, the pair likely encountered each other during that period, but Cleopatra was no longer a child nor heir, and most historians point to the reality that Cleopatra chose Antony to father her children, of which they would have three. The twins, Alexander Helios and Cleopatra Selene, were born in 40 BCE, while Antony was away on a campaign against Parthia in Syria. This campaign was aided, by the way, by 200 Egyptian ships that Cleopatra herself provided. Still, this campaign would be the victim of drama, drama caused by Fulvia, Antony's first wife, who started a feud with Octavian in an attempt to see her husband become the sole ruler of Rome. This did not work. Some have even more romantically suggested that Fulvia started this whole mess to draw Antony back to Rome and away from Cleopatra's grasp. But that is just romantic fiction, as the conflict started before Antony and Cleopatra ever met at Tarsus but Fulvia died and the issue generally faded. The bromance of Antony and Octavian temporarily rekindled. To keep peace and his hold on the east, he married Octavian's sister, the very originally named Octavia. But this relationship was not a good thing for today's subject, who found herself pushed to the back burner as Antony and Octavia, who, by the way, don't make for a power couple name, had two children. In 37 BCE, Antony was in Antioch preparing for yet another war with Parthia when he summoned Cleopatra to discuss issues regarding Judea and how she might financially and militarily support his campaigns. So she sailed to his side once more, but of course, ever the cunning cutthroat pragmatist brought with her the twins, who Antony now met for the first time. This is also when most historians indicate some plans beginning to form for their mutual future, as Antony greatly increased Cleopatra's personal dominions to include most of modern-day Lebanon. After this, she accompanied him to the fringes of Parthia, where she then returned to Egypt pregnant with their third child, who would be named Ptolemy Philadelphus. But Antony was defeated and humiliated during his campaign, and Cleopatra personally had to resupply his troops. But his embarrassing failures prompted him to return to Alexandria and not Rome, and this is where shit really starts to spiral. Just as a social war was intensifying between Octavian and Antony, the latter began to make some moves that made him look less inclined toward Rome and more toward Cleopatra. I'm sorry, I mean Egypt. No, I definitely fucking mean Cleopatra. Which brings us to the donations of Alexandria. So basically, in 34 BCE, in the middle of a heated propaganda war with his rival Octavian, Antony... Antony decided that it would be a really smart idea to essentially triple the size of Cleopatra's dominions by naming his children rulers of most of the east, under some loose connection that Cleopatra had to the former Seleucid kingdom. She and her children now ruled from Greece across Asia Minor to Armenia, and the entire Mediterranean coast. In a grand ceremony with Cleopatra dressed as Isis, her sons by Antony were awarded Armenia, Medea, Parthia, Syria, Phoenicia, and Cilicia while Cleopatra Selene was awarded control of Libya and much of North Africa. A strategy that began in Antioch, originally with Octavian's approval, would now be the breaking point for Rome and Octavian, as the Senate refused to ratify the terms of the donations of Alexandria. Octavian acted against the only figure that could truly ever question his legitimacy to rule in Rome, Caesarian, King of Kings. So in 32 BCE, Octavian pushed the Senate to formally declare war on Cleopatra. Why? Well, they, that is, Antony and Cleopatra, went and got married while Antony was still married to Octavian's sister. And he may have even, rather foolishly or pragmatically, recognized Caesarian as Caesar's legitimate heir in his will, which Octavian had illegally seized. Now at war with Cleopatra, the Roman Republic unknowingly entered its final conflict as the liberators went to war once more, this time against each other. 
And as fun as this propaganda war that preceded it was to research, and Cleopatra was certainly a key victim of Octavian's slander, we don't really have time to dive into all that. Still, and really surprising to me, nearly 40% of the Roman Senate and both consuls at the time left the city to join Antony's cause in Greece, which, again, really shocked me. Both sides raised equally powerful armies, but Octavian had Agrippa, who was a far superior naval commander. This shitshow all came to a head at the Battle of Actium. Octavian knew that he had the better trained and equipped Roman navy, which was pitted against Cleopatra's much larger fleet. More than 600 ships engaged in one of the largest naval battles in history at Actium, and in the end, Antony and Cleopatra were left fleeing for Alexandria. In the aftermath of this battle, Octavian besieged Cleopatra, as even her most loyal and allied of client states began to switch sides, including Herod the Great of Judea. And I think this is a perfect time to pivot to this episode's moment in the margins, as Herod, the real king, not just some biblical ghost story, was certainly a marginalized figure in Cleopatra's story mostly because she actively wanted it to be that way. So we sang this song in high school choir, Coventry Carol. It's actually a pentatonic song now, too. But it went something like this. Herod the king, in his raging, charged he have this day. His men of might in his own right, all children young, to slay. And it's all about the massacre of the innocents, which most historians agree is bullshit that never happened. But what is even more shocking is how important Herod, the king of Judea, a tetrarch of Rome, was to this story, as he was pretty much in the background of every major battle from the moment he became king. So I figured we would look at the two Herods, the biblical and real-life one, real quick in this round's moment in the margins. So Herod the Great, first king of the Roman client kingdom of Judea, was born around 72 BCE in Indumia, and probably raised Jewish. His early life is of little significance to the story and really not that documented, but he eventually rose to power thanks to his father's friendly relations with Julius Caesar. He first served as governor of Galilee in 47 BCE before being named one of Mark Antony's tetrarchs, that is, a regional ruler, and the Roman Republic eventually named him King of the Jews and Judea, a kingdom that he would have to subdue from a rival claimant, Antigonus, who aimed to see a Jewish people free from Rome. He became the sole ruler of Judea in 37 BCE when Mark Antony helped him capture Jerusalem. He then sent Antigonus to be executed. His rule began a new dynasty for the region. His reign, however, continued to be questioned by members of the very dynasty he replaced, and our subject for today, who was a near-constant thorn in Herod's side. Cleopatra may have aided rival claimants, but also aimed to seize Herod's lands for herself. Herod ruled near absolute, some say as a tyrant, only subject to Roman authority until his death in 4 BCE. But his reign was one of general growth and success for Judea. Herod the Great launched a series of building projects including massive temples, new cities, and ports. He also made use of new Roman technologies to improve the kingdom's infrastructure, and he somehow managed to keep his kingdom alive through the tumult discussed throughout this episode. Herod sided with Antony and Cleopatra in their war against Octavian, but in the end switched his loyalty to the winning side, actually going against his former allies. His loyalties to the Emperor Augustus kept him in power. Generally, his leadership efforts have got him labeled as a sort of great and terrible figure, as his efforts to live and rule under Jewish law were mirrored by acts of intolerance and oppression sort of a build a temple, oppress, or kill thousands kind of thing. But most of these acts can be seen as him acting in the interest of Rome and not the population of Judea, which, I guess, as a tetrarch of the Roman Empire, could be justified. Not all of them were like Cleopatra, trying to seize power for herself. 
Even one of his greatest construction projects, the Augustium Temple, was built in the emperor's honor. Of course, surprisingly, like our subject for today, nothing that Herod did during his reign really gets remembered thanks to the more popularly accepted myths that surround his life and reign, as Herod is most well-remembered for the Massacre of the Innocents. I've actually mentioned this before, as one artist actually recreated a famous painting of the same name, but this time, you know, demonstrating the atrocities committed against the Canadian beaver population. Either way, let's start by defining this possibly fictitious story that has tarnished Herod's legacy beyond repair. In the Gospel of Matthew, and I hate to use the Bible as a source, but in this case I pretty much have to, a bunch of people started showing up in Herod's kingdom looking for this baby that had been born and was destined to be king of the Jews. You know, Jesus. But, as the Roman proclaimed king of the Jews, Herod naturally was concerned, so he eventually gave the order to kill all males under the age of two. Directly quoting Matthew 2.16, When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. But no contemporary sources, including the work of an early Jewish historian Josephus, tell this tale, save only the gospel, and most historians and biblical historians agree that Herod was likely the victim of allegory. But that's the shit that songs are written about. So that is what people remember. Herod is a fitting match to today's subject, as both are victims of a tarnished legacy that is built mainly around myth. Herod, king of Judea, died circa 4 BCE in Jericho. It is said that he died such a painful death of an unknown disease that it came to be known as Herod's evil, a sickness so painful that he even tried to take his own life by stabbing. And I honestly can't think of a better jump back to the main story. So Cleopatra's downfall and death is by far the most famous part of our story, and honestly, it does reveal some key points in her character. In examining it, we explore the main plot point of Shakespeare's tragedy of Antony and Cleopatra, which alongside Hollywood really cemented the beautiful temptress myth that has plagued popular memory of our great mind for centuries. Still, in all that drama, there is a good bit of truth. The real theater is in the treacherous lead-up to their mutual suicides, tales of flirtations with betrayal although possible as seen in her conversations with Octavian after Antony's death were by and large exaggerated. The back and forth of this dramatic love story is not really how it all went down. In the end, Antony took his own life in defeat, possibly believing Cleopatra had already done so herself. But I really don't take it to be as romantic as the stories tell. As for the reality, it isn't as poetic, but still pretty hard to believe. Antony did indeed ask his slave Eros to kill him, but Eros refused, taking his own life. Antony then stabbed himself in the stomach with his own sword. Most stories tell us that Antony was alive when he was brought to Cleopatra's chambers. In the end, Antony died on August 1st, 30 BCE, and more than 2,000 years later, I was born the next day. But Cleopatra died more than a week later, as she went on to negotiate for her kingdom and her life and her legacy after Antony's death. What is left out of the dramas is the fact that Cleopatra was permitted to personally embalm Antony's body. From there, Cleopatra began negotiating with Octavian. In these moments, we get the one piece that is undeniably true, actually one of the few quotes that historians agree that Cleopatra actually said, was this, I will not be led in a triumph. From Plutarch to Shakespeare to Hollywood, most point to the fact that our great mind refused to surrender to a life of shame and humiliation like her sister had. It was only when news reached her ears that she would likely be paraded around Rome as Octavian's conquest that she finally decided to join her former love in death. Although the infamous asp bite is a little hard to believe, it does make for some good stage drama. 
but most historians agree that she more likely used some sort of toxic cream or something she injected into her body using some sort of pin or needle. The cream is a very likely story, as it was a poison she had probably used before on her brother slash co-ruler slash husband. Either way, Cleopatra died on August 10th, 30 BCE. She was 39, her resting place unknown, her dynasty all but dead. Octavian had the couple buried together with full honors due to a great Roman soldier and leader like Antony and a great queen like Cleopatra. But what came of her many children? Well, all of them were taken captive by Octavian, and that was one of the reasons Cleopatra didn't immediately take her own life, to negotiate the safety and security of her children. Two of them would make it back to Rome and be paraded in a triumph. Caesarian was most likely executed by Octavian as he was the one piece that could really bring into question Octavian's position as Caesar's heir. Cleopatra's last child, Ptolemy Philadelphus, may have drowned in a shipwreck en route to Rome, or he may have died once arriving in Rome of natural or possibly but rarely noted nefarious causes. All of Cleopatra's children by Mark Antony were to be raised by Octavia in Rome. Little is known of what came of Alexander Helios after his participation in the triumph, but we do know what happened to Cleopatra Selene. She was married to Juba II of Numidia, and the pair actually were some of the last remnants of the Hellenistic Age, and they also did what they could to keep Cleopatra's name alive and well. They would rule a newly established kingdom in North Africa under Augustus's appointment. Cleopatra Selene even built her court full of her mother's former supporters, and she seemed to be every bit the force that her mother was. Juba II and Cleopatra Selene would name their only child Ptolemy. It seems that Cleopatra's legacy would hold out just a little while longer. Juba II ruled for more than 30 years after Cleopatra Selene's death in 5 BC, and his son inherited his throne. Ptolemy of Mauritania would be executed 20 years into his reign in 40 AD for printing coins in his image and letting his ego get the better of him. This was the end of the line for Cleopatra and the Ptolemies. Her grandson's death was almost certainly the death of her dynasty and family name. Yet she remained a symbol to be worshipped in Egypt for hundreds of years to come. It was, as Roller put it in the final lines of his biography, Cleopatra was a force not to be eliminated merely by death. So here we are at the fifth, not halfway point of the episode where we ponder what if, and there are plenty of temptations here. I mean, how easy it would be to ponder Caesar's survival and what it meant for Cleopatra, her son, her kingdom, but that opens a Pandora's box of what ifs and a beaver hole I don't have time to fall into, and it really focuses too much on Caesar. So let us hone in on a more pivotal point when Cleopatra was very much in the driver's seat. So I ask you, what if Cleopatra's forces had won at the Battle of Actium? Well, I'll just go out on a limb here and say that I don't think she would have killed herself. Actually, this is pretty easy to figure out, as she and Antony had pretty much set in motion what their new world would look like. Her sons by Antony would have ruled Asia Minor and beyond. Our pal Herod would have likely been reduced to a client state of Cleopatra's Egypt at best. Her daughter would have ruled Cyprus, North Africa, or something bigger. And she would have ruled alongside Caesarian, that is, Ptolemy XV, as she had planned. But what does this mean for our great mind? Well, I see this alternative reality going this way. Antony rules from Rome, like Augustus, and Caesar as a sort of dictator for life, with Cleopatra as his de facto queen of the East. The pair, of course, meet regularly for encounters, but we'll leave that to the side. She would have been granted almost total autonomy by Antony, and I have no doubt her state would have prospered. Of course, Antony would have to keep up appearances with his wife Octavia, the sister of Octavian the Great Traitor in this story, but knowing our girl Cleopatra, I'm guessing she wouldn't have lasted too long. In this Hellenistic world, Cleopatra reigns over an empire greater than that of Ptolemy I, and Mark Antony and the full might of Rome would be at her side. Rome would have continued its path of expansion under the competent military leadership of Antony, and the Roman Empire would have continued to grow. 
I still see the Senate and the Republic fading away, that just seemed to be the writing on the wall, but the big difference is Egypt remains a relevant player in the Mediterranean world. Here's where we run into a problem, though. Cleopatra would have been tasked with building an empire that could rival Rome militarily, politically, and financially, as her independence would in the end be reliant on Antony's good graces. His heirs not likely swayed by Cleopatra unless his heirs were his sons. Then the world would have been truly hers. Still, her and Caesarion's long-term success would certainly be a difficult thing to envision under a new Roman dictator outside of Antony's bloodline. I think that Cleopatra would have certainly outlived old Antony, but she would not have outlived Rome whose legions would have eventually found themselves on Egypt's shores again. Cleopatra's victory and survival would have at the very least allowed Egypt and the Hellenistic world to slug on for another century. Certainly she would have been a true power in the east, with her tentacles wrapped around the entire Middle East, Asia Minor, and North Africa. But she didn't, and she lost. Got a little too up close and personal with a snake, which again is probably a myth, and she died. Octavian was named Pharaoh within a month, and Egypt was now basically his own personal territory as he paved his own way to Augustan greatness. And on that note, let's move to the scale of greatness to see how Cleopatra will fare. Of course, we are going to start with the drink. It's cute, it's fun, it's fruity, but it's way too fucking sweet for me. If you don't know, Hypnotic is a fluorescent blue fruit punch liqueur, and Kinky Pink is equally tart. Mix it together with Sprite Zero, and it's about as sweet as it gets. I mean, it will get you there, I guess, and it is easy to drink, so let's say 4 points for taste. I mean, I expected sweep, this is a lot for me. One review of Hypnotic that I read while looking up the price was it reeks of the 2000s, and honestly, I'm kind of okay with that. But on that note, price is different. A small bottle of Hypnotic is like $17, which is annoying. Even smaller bottles aren't cheap. And for something that is useless to me in all but a few sweet, pretty cocktails, it's kind of a waste of money. Unless you are chasing a nostalgic dream or drunken nightmare from two decades ago. So I can't really say that this drink is worth the price. Plus, you need to get something pink too, which makes the drink an even bigger pain in the ass, so two points for price. As for return, I don't like sweet cocktails too much, but this was fine, I guess. I feel like it would be fun to have at a party, which I could also say is true for our great mind. Either way, I will rate it in the middle and maybe make these again. So it gets 3 points for returnability, leaving the Sleeping Beauty cocktail with 9 out of 18 points, 3 crowns, and some harsh criticism of its main ingredient, Hypnotic. Now on to our great mind, Cleopatra VII, Queen and Pharaoh of Egypt. I'm going to say it, her story might be my favorite one yet, certainly right up there with Catherine de' Medici, hell she even rivals her for my little history crush. But ancient history is frustrating and confounding, with primary source material limited to pottery and poetry that is full of bias, ego, and penis. It can be a little hard for the average historian to access. But who really fucking cares? Cleopatra was fun, but we don't start there. First, let's look at Cleopatra the leader. As a leader, I should note a female leader of the ancient world, Cleopatra led, killed, and strove for absolute greatness, only just barely falling short. In her life, she saw her kingdom surpass that of all her predecessors. It seemed up until the very end that her legacy was going to be triumphant and secure, but it wasn't. As a politician, she knew how to play the game and run her state effectively, and she certainly knew how to stroke fragile egos and use all of the weapons at her disposal. She had to fight and claw her way to queenship, and she had to fight for it every day, and she fucking did it. She went rounds with Rome, the true power in the Mediterranean world. She grappled with Caesar, Octavian, Antony, and her brusbans, and both of her sisters, and I guess honorable mention, Herod. Little stood in the way of her leadership, until the very end when she was defeated and took her own life. But in that action, she took one final moment to command. 
Refusing to be part of Caesar's triumph and victory, unwilling to be a trophy or pawn, she chose and no one chose for her. Five points for being one of the most resourceful, albeit a little brutal, leaders to date. And I would say that by the time of the donations of Alexandria, she had accomplished all she set out to do. She never let a setback stop her. She toppled her enemies, save only one. She reigned for 30 years. As Egypt was nearly eclipsed in Rome's shadow, she managed to make it shine relevant. Sure, she fell and took free Egypt with her, but she secured a legacy, however fanciful and romanticized it might be, that has endured for millennia. She accomplished greatness for certain, but she lost it all in the end, so I will give her 4 out of 6 points here. And yes, I know I picked the great minds, I naturally find most of them amusing, but she was by far the most exciting and entertaining to date. I normally knock people for entertainment, for lacking conflict, drama, sex, mystery, intrigue, or murder, but Cleopatra, well she had it all, hell she did it all. She was so entertaining to me that I just kept reading about her for an extra week. 100% 6 out of 6 for entertainment. That leaves her with 15 out of 18 points and a high 5 crowns. But this certainty regarding her entertainment value is matched by my certainty regarding her piece of shittiness. So let's go to the POS curve. Oh Cleopatra, I can get past a lot. I can call necessary killing justice. I have never cared about or how many partners a great mind takes. Sure, incest is fucked up, but it was what you Ptolemies did. All of this just keeps things enticing. And I didn't mean to say incest is enticing, but it kind of came out that way. Still, the constant fratricide, that's rough, especially when you pretty much personally poisoned your teenage husband. Ptolemy XIII, Arsinoe, arguably they had it coming, but the rest was just for power. Hell, it even seems like you may have dogged Mark Antony into suicide a little bit, depending on the source you look at, only to choose life for a second more. I don't know. You used, you killed, and so much more, but you did what you had to do to survive, for the most part. I guess it will take two points for the whole poisoning your brother, and you know, that math is disappointing, but you still held on to your fifth crown. So there you have it. Cleopatra just barely holds on to that fifth crown, dropping to 13 out of 18 points, a low-end five crowns. Still a triumphant showing for our first great mind of the ancient world and our second great mind of season four. Well, that's it. If you enjoyed this episode of Drinks with Great Minds in History, then let me know on Instagram or Twitter at DGMH History or on the Drinks with Great Minds in History podcast Facebook group. It's more than just a Facebook group. And be sure to leave the show a great, hopefully five-star review wherever you listen. If you're looking for even more Drinks with Great Minds in History, then we hope you'll consider supporting the show over on the DGMH Patreon page. There, listeners can get access to all sorts of bonus content available to supporters of all levels, from bonus Last Call chats, from your favorite Psych and Shots episodes, to extra moments with Mr. DGMH and Cullen, plus what I'm teaching, Washington's words, Cullen chats China, Pete chats Portugal, another moment with Mr. DGMH on the 30 Years War, and pregame episodes where we catch up chat history and answer listener questions. It's all out there for you, and there is content available to listeners of every level. So let's wrap this up. A titan herself, Cleopatra met with four titans over the course of her reign that one way or another helped to destroy both Egypt and the Roman Republic. Egypt and Cleopatra seem to be at the center of so much drama in this age. From love affairs to political intrigue to questions of succession, Cleopatra both excited and ignited the tumult that begot Augustus, Emperor of Rome. The debate surrounding her legacy makes her look like a source of constant angst for many within Rome. Fuck Cicero distrusted, I would say outright disliked her, even once writing, quote, I detest the queen, and continued, quote, the arrogance of the queen when she was living in the estate across the Tiber makes my blood boil. Still, Egypt was a cash cow, Cleopatra the key to open the door to that wealth. The problem, for Rome at least, was that she wanted to keep that door shut, and that she was a key that never wished to be used. Egypt was hers. Well, it really wasn't, 
but I think to her it really was. She aimed to keep Rome as far from Egypt as possible, which oddly required her to welcome it in pretty close. Extremely close. In doing this, her kingdom spiraled toward failure, but not before reaching its apex. But in the end, it became little more than a piece of Rome. She lost, she fell, but not without a fight. In Cleopatra's life, a marvelous civilization, like the very library that stood for a century, seemed to burn to the ground, only to make way for a new empire. In her death went Egypt in the last titan of the Hellenistic age. So as we wrap this up, let's touch on beauty one last time. It's not that looks and lust weren't important to the story, but they are half as important as cunning and intellect. Cleopatra was as pragmatic as any other great mind on this show. She squared off against the might of Rome with her wit and wit alone. And yes, sure, she did make use of a very powerful and manipulative weapon at her disposal. She played on the idiocy of a lusting man. And as a lusting man, I can tell you we can be quite stupid. Soviets and Americans had nukes. The British Empire had an unrivaled navy. Cortez had his steel. Isabella had her faith. And Cleopatra had something else. Like every other mind mentioned, what makes her great is that until the very end, she knew exactly how to use it. Even if she did end up backing the wrong horse. In the very end, Cleopatra reigned until she no longer saw it as a viable option. She chose to end her reign by the same will that ended the lives of almost all her siblings and rivals. Her own. All her rivals, I should say, save only one. Octavian. Hers was a story of wit, ruthlessness, lust, drama, and war, yet just about every jackass playwright, producer, and historian out there would rather talk about beauty. So as this chat comes to a close, and in honor of Smith's latest work on our subject for today, which will at the very least continue to highlight Cleopatra's relevance in the present day, in the end I ask of you one simple thing when it comes to Cleopatra VII. Keep the word beauty out your fucking mouth. Cheers! Cheers!